Well, now time for our regular feature every Wednesday night. We have uh, Hayden, and now well, he's every second one. It's his turn tonight. Colin Peacock, of course, they alternate with Midweek Media Watch. And uh, I see tonight you thought you'd start by checking in on our major six o'clock news broadcasts as the election season starts to heat up a bit. Yeah, that's right. I just thought it was a bit of an interesting study in contrasting styles and editorial choices watching One News and News Hub at six yesterday. So just contrast them a bit. This is how One News began its bulletin. Good evening. It is one of the biggest issues facing our generation and now the government's made another move to make our country a climate leader. The goal is for New Zealand to be one of the first in the world to have 100% renewable electricity generation. That package by political editor Jessica Much Mackay covered a $2 billion investment fund uh, coming in from the US company BlackRock aimed at uh, funding developments that could get New Zealand's electricity consumption from roughly 83 to 100% renewable by 2030. And I just wanted to highlight it. I lamented the lack of climate focus in the media stories on Nationals' transport plans, which are very road-heavy, of course, and that was in my Media Watch segment over the weekend. So it was nice to see a story with a climate component leading the 6pm news. And I note as well, it wasn't just one news, there's also been some climate-focused commentary on transport since my story went to air. For instance, in the New Zealand Herald today, senior writer Simon Wilson took aim at both our biggest parties for their carbon-intensive transport plans under the headline, While Labour and National Battle to Build More Roads, the World Burns. That's a good headline. What was the what was his conclusion? Even more remarkable conclusion, I thought, <laughs> just worth highlighting because his column actually I've never seen this before, but it ends with the words a thousand curses on them both. <laughs> a hex. Yeah. A hex on your life. Primarily that indicates, I think, that Simon Wilson has had it up to here yeah. uh, with Labour and National, but I also found it striking. I think more columns should end with the laying of curses <laughs> in many ways. If you're, if you're going to criticise someone, go all out. Lay, <laughs> lay a hex. Have you got some thoughts? I thought we could get more specific, right? This is a thousand curses. The, new, the number is very, is, it's a big number. I mm. like that about it, but maybe we could get more specific. You know, may every avocado they buy be brown and bruised. <laughs> may their fridge always have a funky smell to it. You know, that kind of stuff. Mm. May they wake up feeling stomach cramps in the night. That's just a little bit of an editorial style guide I'd like to implement there. Oh, well, we'll see if you have any influence at all. Um, as we head back to the, the battle of the six o'clock news shows, uh, what was News Hub at six doing? They had slightly different priorities on the same night. So this is the story they led with. Tēnā tato kato. good evening. National leader Christopher Luxon is not ruling out banning mobile phones in schools. He teased the policy during a school visit in Hamilton. Where he also appeared to stumble on one very simple question, how to spell cat. Now, I know, I know the easy thing to say here, look, the country's electricity grid going potentially 100% renewable, addressing climate change, that's probably more, quote, unquote, newsworthy. It's probably more, quote, unquote, important to the long-term habitability of our planet. It's probably more important in general. Absolutely, that's the easy criticism to make. Yep. But it isn't as likely to provoke chatter and hubbub and general, uh, you know, 
online debate and you're not going to have people chin-wagging as much over wind farms at the water cooler and I understand that sometimes you have to give the people what they want it's not quite as immediate to people's daily lives as sending their kid to school uh, with with a phone or without a phone and it wasn't just News Hub that made that editorial choice to prioritise phones in schools over the last few days. It was leading the Herald today. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw that. So it's funny, we, we have got this story where it's probably quite an important thing, our country going 100% renewable electricity, addressing yeah. the biggest crisis in the world, but we're all just talking about cell phones in schools. Uh, you know, it, in fairness to News Hub, they did actually, it's not like they're averse to covering environmental matters. I think that they led with the expansion of protected zones and the ban of bottom trawling in the Hodaki Gulf on the, tonight's 6pm bulletin. So they, they are environmentally conscious as well. One thing they are, um, I think above all else, they have a very keen eye for what will hook the viewers and how to put together an entertaining package. And most of all, they have an unerring instinct for a potentially awkward moment. And this story that I just mentioned about the cell phones was uh, flushed with them and you're not going to hear as many vignettes like this as uh, on One News as you do on News Hub. Teaching the basics brilliantly, Nationals policy put into practice. Christopher Luxon may need to brush up on his own basics though. Can. K-A-N. Very good. Can is spelt with a C. What's K-A-T? Cat. I'm just checking, I'm just checking to make sure you look very smart. I'm just making sure. One from three. Catastrophic. <laughs> that's, that's Jenna Lynch applying some rigorous journalistic scrutiny to Chris Luxon's spelling there. K-A-T. I am going to go into bat mm-hmm. for the National Party leader here. First off, spelling under pressure is surprisingly hard. So Mark, spell media. In, oh. Microphone on. There's, there's been yeah. five seconds. M e d i a. Okay, well, okay. You're, you're a cool cucumber. I used under to do pressure. a spelling bee program. <laughs> You've done everything. I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, this anyway. is a, This is this is not fair. I didn't know that you'd done a spelling bee program. I wouldn't have. Which was one, by the way, <laughs> by one and only Jim Mora. Oh, R-N-Z, was it? Yeah. What do you mean? Like in his capacity as a broadcaster? Yeah, like spell. was it a ce- celebrity? Yeah, sort of celebrity thing. Yeah, yeah. It was the a great, celebrity. Yeah, it was called the Great New Zealand Spelling Bee. And it was it always celebrities? Uh, yeah, uh, actors. Uh, we had politicians. Uh, we had comedians. We Who was the best speller that you ever came across? Jim Mora. Jim Mora yeah, was the best. Speller. He won it. He won it. Yeah. Was it only a one-time thing? It was a one-one series about. 10 episodes, I think. And Jim Moore won the team. He's my champ. Okay. I remember that there used to be these um, shows that I think they were testing your IQ and Ray Bon Can always won those. Anyway, I'm sorry that I don't know about... He was on the Was he on the the spelling (laughs) bee? I'm sorry that I don't remember the spelling bee. We've gotten off topic, but I'm going into bat for Christopher Luxon because, like, what what is he meant to do there? Yes, he should be able to spell cat, but also you have a child there and you don't know what their spelling ability is. You know, you've got the cameras on you. You don't want to be seen insulting a child and being like, you can't spell on the TV. That's almost worse than, than coming off as someone that doesn't know how to spell cat. And and you know, I also know that sometimes an educator might be able to text in and uh, confirm or deny this for me, but sometimes you, it's good for a kid to just know the consonant sound. So a K might be perfectly acceptable, it might be progress there, uh, because they know that a K makes a K sound 
and that's okay. Let me know if you're an educator uh, anyway. There was a, um, a prime, uh, not a prime minister, a vice president of the United States, Dan Quayle. He got into a huge controversy because he couldn't spell potato. Oh, that, this is it. Uh, Colin sent me this clip, and oh, I did didn't, he? I didn't, I didn't click on it. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry, Colin. I'm sorry to reveal this on air. Okay, I've lost my place. No, it's, it's, I, we're, I mean, what I was going to say is that after this, I mean, News Hub did get to the renewable energy story. It was, in fact, a politics double-headed to start the show, and Amelia Wade fronted the one on renewable energy, and her package was a pretty good summary of the details. But again, I'm not going to play that, because, again, there was a slightly mortifying moment in there for Chris Luxon. Christopher Luxon was asked whether he thought it was a priority for New Zealand to become 100% renewable in its electricity. That's got to be our goal. News Hub later checked with National to confirm it would be keeping the 2030 renewable energy target. A spokesperson said that is not one of our goals. That's pretty rough. That's an instantaneous fact check from News Hub. However, I would be remiss if I didn't point out that One News had some spiky moments of its own on its Tuesday show. So in their case, it wasn't national. Their awkwardness was centred on Labour. And this is One News political reporter Benedict Collins cleverly skewering the police minister Ginny Anderson after what had been until then a relatively jokey segment about her efforts to keep our police in New Zealand in the face of that cheeky Australian ag campaign trying to lure them across the Tasman. Far lap, crowded house. Um, Pavlova. <laughs> Pavlova, Russell Crowe now, they're coming for the cops. Uh, they're our cops, we love them, we'll do our best to keep them. Yeah, are you going to offer them more money? Uh, not right now, no. Are you going to give them uh, overtime? Uh, that's not on the cards right now. Our government perhaps making those Queensland beaches look even better. Yeah, warming them up with some far lap and then knocking them down with no, we're not going to pay them more and no, we're not going to give them overtime election season is certainly heating up. And sticking with politics uh, for a bit longer, there's a new political poll out, I see. Yeah, The Guardian putting out Mm. The Guardian Essential poll in the lead up to the election. Its first result was released today. uh, And perhaps uh, voters aren't too caught up on stuff like the ability to spell cat Mm. because it shows national on 34.5% in position to govern with ACT, which recorded 11.6%. Not national. Labour was on 29%. The Greens 8.5%. And making a return to Parliament would be New Zealand first, which got to 5.3%. And that's a relatively interesting mm-hmm. breakdown of the vote, particularly that New Zealand first bit, but mm-hmm. even more interesting results came from the breakdowns of voting intention by age and region. So what did they show? Well, the poll showed, uh, contrary to what would probably, you'd probably assume, is that it showed apparently older people are more likely to vote Labour. So it had 35% of people voting uh, Labour who are 55+. plus. Mm-hmm. And 21% of people aged between 18 and 34, and that would buck global voting trends where millennials and Gen Z are generally more likely to vote left than older generations, but it also bucks trends from other local polls. For instance, Courier's uh, latest showed a far different breakdown with more than 60% below of people below the age of 40 intending to vote left or centre-left. Mm. So not sure what's happening there. Seemingly divergent results from two of our polls, and it seems that both of them can't be on the money. Is there a regional breakdown at all? 
There is, and this was also interesting. It showed really low support for Labour in Auckland. It recorded just 23% of the vote there. That compares to 41% in Wellington and 31% in Canterbury. Again, that's probably pretty unexpected given there's a number of Labour strongholds in Auckland and a relative paucity of them in Canterbury. And in any case, this is, I don't know what's going on, the breakdown of the methodology underneath the poll story seemed pretty solid. It was, you know, everything seemed in order. Mm. Uh, it'll be coming out monthly from now to the election, so we'll be getting a picture of whether these trends hold in any case. It's good to have another point of information Uh more polling. We don't have that much polling in this country, particularly with stuff in the Herald discontinuing their regular polls some years ago. And I'll just note uh, that Farrah Hancock, and I'm going to be hopefully talking a bit more about her later, mm. uh, has been keeping track of all the election polling data for RNZ and putting together a kind of poll of polls. So you can check out RNZ's website for a snapshot of that. Mm. So moving on, what's happening at our biggest news organisation? That's Stuff, of course. Um, they seem to be cutting staff, and now there's talk of legal action, I see. In yeah, and Shane Curry's yeah, recent Herald. column. Yeah, I mean, just to recap, in the last few months, Stuff has apparently cut 16 roles in its print production team. It's lost a bunch of its well-regarded and experienced staff, either because they've quit or they've been made redundant. So... On the editorial leadership side of things, you've got head of news Mark Stevens, former post editor Caitlin Cherry. They've both gone. Several high-profile reporters have also left, including uh, Ali Moore, who edited its Me Too section. That was pretty rigorous and well-regarded. Climate section editor Eloise Gibson and senior reporter Kirsty Johnston. So have these journalists all found new roles? Several of them are just here in RNZ, actually. So Kirsty Johnson, yep. she's on the in-depth team. Eloise Gibson has announced that she's becoming a climate correspondent for RNZ. And Mark Stevens is replacing Richard Sutherland as the new head of news. So is that the end of this upheaval that's going on at uh, stuff at the moment? Yeah, from that column, it doesn't appear so. So that uh, Shane Curry, former Herald editor turned media columnist, he his column's called Media Insider, and he just did a story about a leaked legal letter from the union Etu protesting an apparent proposal for more job cuts to come, and that would uh, reportedly involve the company disestablishing 28 roles and creating 20 new roles. So I've done the maths, that's a net loss of eight roles. Uh, you mm -hmm. can check that out if you're a statistician at home. I mean, that does sound a bit similar to a recent restructure it did of local news, where dedicated roles and regional papers were disestablished and replaced by a more centralised team of correspondents covering the day-to-day -day news for multiple regions. In that case, there wasn't any jobs actually cut. And this one, it seems like things may be different, and that's important on its own in a tight media jobs market. But the move also might signal a bit of a strategic shift, I think, from stuff. In what way? What, what signal does it? Yeah, I, I think in this round of restructures, it's apparently disestablishing its national correspondence team. If you don't know what that is, it was this... Uh, it was announced in 2017 to quite a lot of fanfare. It's meant to be this elite team mm. of high-caliber journalists who are able to focus on in-depth reporting on big issues. It includes, uh, or perhaps included, Charlie Mitchell. I mean, it still exists, but uh, Charlie Mitchell, Carmen Parahi, uh, Dana Johansson, Katie Kenny, more. These are all very... Uh, respected mm. names and while it's understood several of these reporters could be reassigned to 
individual mastheads losing the team would seem to be a step away from that type of really specialist in-depth reporting, particularly when you look at it combined with other moves stuff have made in the same sort of batch of stuff. For instance, I mean, with Aloise gone, it seems that the climate team has disbanded, and that was a big thing for them. Mm. Uh, they, they established this climate section. They said that climate is the biggest story in the world. We're going to cover it like it is. They did stuff like committed to not, covering climate denial or scepticism, as mm-hmm. it sometimes gets called. Uh, and uh, apparently, uh, I've heard potentially that the Potiaki section, which is focused primarily on Māori news, that might be at risk. And that's notable because, again, the country, the company made history recently in 2020 with Tamato Pono, its mm. apology for past racist coverage. So overall, it seems like a shift away from specialist in-depth reporting and towards maybe more general news and also podcasts. But that specialist stuff, um, that's the, the, the sort of material that a lot of people would pay money for, you know. And, of course, what stuff has just introduced its paywall, hasn't it? Yeah, it seems a bit incongruous, right? And they would seem to be at odds. But the way it's done its paywall, it seems to be mainly targeted at people who want to consume local news, like in the Post, or if you want something more targeted to where you live in Taranaki or Canterbury or wherever, you might consider signing up for a subscription to the Taranaki Daily News or the Press. And meanwhile, that that's the way it's targeting the paywall. And meanwhile, it seems the main free website is focusing perhaps on general content and those podcasts uh, towards a more broad audience. And that is a slightly different model to the Herald, where its paywall is is selling that premium content, that specialist content. Its paywall is targeted at consumers who want, who might want more in-depth stuff, whether it's, whether it's Matt Nippet on business or Jamie Morton on science and the environment or Anne Gibson on property. What do you think of that strategy? Yeah, I mean, with the proviso that it's early days and I'm not exactly a media business expert, I mean, I'm a little bit sceptical. I mean, if you look at the stories that drive sign-ups to premium at places like the Herald, I understand it's generally those sort of time-consuming investigations or informed commentary or really in-depth, nitty-gritty specialist reporting, Mm. and that's the stuff that people want to support and pay for. And if you look at those names that are going, that's what stuff's losing a lot of, so two recent Reporter of the Year winners in Kirsty Johnston and Ellie Moore, Eloise Gibson. She's won awards for science reporting. Michelle Duff, who also recently left, she was a highly decorated reporter. And maybe the sorts of baubles that these people win Mm. don't matter, but they're at least some indication of quality. They're something Mm. that you advertise on your homepage or in your selling proposition to potential subscribers. And advertising in-depth reporting is perhaps a more positive thing to sell than just saying you're going to lose your local news if you Mm. don't pay up. So is this a case of stuff kind of not wanting to follow the Herald, you know, to to duplicate what they've done with their paywall? Yeah, maybe. I mean, maybe that's it. They don't want to just do what the Herald's done. Mm. Uh, don't want to be seen to be copying their big competitor. But what's that quote? You know, good artists borrow, great artists steal. I mean, (laughs) if something works, sometimes maybe it's best to just copy it. I could see people paying for content from these sorts of reporters that are uh, that are potentially going or having their jobs at risk. And as things stand, it is losing a lot of the journalists that I thought would be marketable for a paywall. Though I will note that it is is gaining a very recognisable name in Tover O'Brien ahead of the election. Yes, indeed. So it's fair to say that the the vibe, uh, I imagine, is not exactly wonderful at stuff right now. I mean, I've, I've talked to 
multiple people at the company who, yeah, it seems that morale is low or has is a lot lower than it has been in the past. And I know that's not universal. There's parts of the company that maybe are doing a bit better, perhaps in Auckland, for instance. There's, there's I think, discontent from the rank and file about the strategy being put in place by the company's new management team, which includes new chief executive Laura Maxwell, chief audio officer Nadia Tolich, head of content Joanna Norris. And I think that that discontent probably shines through in the leaked letter from E2 that, got, uh, that Shane Curry mm. quoted from. Which is very interesting, isn't it? Because there, there was certainly, you know, a number of years ago when the, the ownership of stuff was transferred into local ownership for a dollar, uh, there was a lot of optimism, wasn't there, about stuff? Um, has that kind of evaporated? There was. When Sinead Boucher took over for that dollar in 2020, she talked about uh, a great new era. There was talk of putting the company into employee ownership or at least giving staff a stake. It doesn't seem that anything's come of that, really. I think staff got a $1,000 Christmas bonus that year. I don't think that's happened again. And now with the latest round of restructures, potential job cuts, it seems a lot of that early optimism is fading. Which I guess could be said uh, or laid at the, the door of the tough economic times we're going through. Yeah, perhaps. Maybe this is a sign that there are some turbulent economic times ahead or storm clouds on the horizon. Maybe this is a streamlining initiative. I'm not sure, but it is worth keeping an eye on the company at least. So, not all bad news for stuff, though, because uh, it prompted a, a political resignation early this week. Yeah, tongue-in-cheek here, but you might remember a few weeks ago the Post broke a story that Wellington Mayor Tori Fano had been bringing her dog Teddy into the office in breach of the council's tenancy agreement. Well, update on that story from the Herald yesterday. Teddy is no longer allowed in the council office and may even be leaving Wellington. So in a story under the headline, Hounded Out, Fano told Georgina Campbell that because she works such long hours it's not feasible to keep Teddy at home all day while she's away or in a doggy daycare so it's uh, he's likely to go and live with her sister in Levin so I guess congratulations to the Post on the first of, uh, first scalp of election season uh, well, as, a, as a dog lover I'm sure I hope they feel really good yeah I'm sure that this would <laughs> I thought this would go over well with you Mark of course in local government not uh, central government and I'm being sarcastic of course and I mean, as a, as a business desk journalist, Dan Brunskill noted on Twitter, or not Twitter anymore, X, uh, this is a sad story. A dog is a family member. It was bothering nobody, and now it's being banished from the city. If a story results in a dog being banished to live in, is there a case that it shouldn't have been reported in the first place? I and mean, what do they gain? You'd argue that. I, I think you'd probably be sympathetic to that view, Mark. I know what it's like to have to find someone to look after a dog, you know, and, and the, how much it costs to put them in a kennel. Yeah. You couldn't afford to do that every day. Anyway. Uh, well, I certainly couldn't. Mm. But, I mean, to put the co- the post case, mm. uh, this was the original story was based on complaints or general discontent from council, and maybe they'll just say, look, uh, well, we have to report on unrest inside the council. That's our job. And really the councillors, if they're the ones that are unhappy and bickering, then they're the ones that are really to blame. However, it would be tough to ignore the context at the time of publication. The Post had just run a story about Fano going out for drinks, forgetting to pay the bill, and when Teddy's tenancy drama was reported, it was billed as her latest headache. So, I mean, 
Perhaps that might suggest that the councillors involved were trying to capitalise on the situation with another negative headline, however tenuous the justification. Perhaps, and I mean, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn here, this, the post might have even been used for partisan ends here, uh, Mark. But in the end, I mean, Teddy is the loser in this high-drama political game of cards. And probably Tori Fano, actually, because losing a dog is not a lot of fun. No, and here she is talking about it on Nick Mill's show on News Talk ZB in Wellington on Tuesday. As you've said, he's my he's my little baby, and um, I this this job is has long hours. Um, it's a lonely job, and you know I'm single, so I don't have a support network at home. And so Teddy was my support. During the same interview, Fano admitted that she wasn't just having to give up her dog, though she's also now foregoing going out to socialise. Are you still going to go out on a Friday night and have a drink? No. 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 That's you. I, I, I'll go to, like, if this Friday I'm going to a theatre show. Uh, I'm still going to go to stuff, but, um, look, I, I'm going to keep certain you know, socialising uh, to, to my home. Which seems a high price to pay for public office, really, doesn't it? Yeah, fair cop to Tori, Tori Fano. I mean, she says she accepts the landlord's rules and the scrutiny that comes with the mayoralty, and she isn't complaining. But if this is the price you have to pay, it's going to limit the range of candidates who are willing to stand for these elected positions. And that's not all on the media. It's also social media. It's how accessible we all are because of the internet. But maybe we do need to ask ourselves as reporters whether we're really fulfilling our function as the fourth estate and to check on government by policing people's private lives so stringently or whether we're just ending up making our governments less representative of the actual populace and far more hostile places to be. And your old mate Colin, Colin Peacock, he had a count of you. Oh, he doesn't like pets at all. <laughs> he thinks they're terrible. He says this is a case of the greater good. Anything that reminds us pets don't belong in our lives is good. Oh, this is me transcribing our conversation from this morning. He might have been being sarcastic at the time. Uh, she shouldn't have a dog if she's fully focused on running a city. Her love should be focused on the citizens. <laughs> She shouldn't have a life, Colin. <laughs> yeah, well, humbug to you. Colin doesn't like cats or dogs. That's context there. <laughs> this is what I have to deal with day in and day out. I don't think he really meant that, but... Yeah, fair cop. You know, I think that you would be sad about this story, Mark. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I, you know, I mean, I know what uh, joy uh, dogs can bring to people's lives, and um, it seems a, a simple thing. I, you know, perhaps every day the dog in the office might be taking it uh, a wee bit too far. But uh, Yeah, you know. it seems tough when you've got a 12-hour day yeah. or something, and you, you know, because the doggy daycares don't run past no. six or seven. And they're blooming expensive as well. Hayden, thank you very much for sharing that with us tonight. And, uh, of course, uh, Sunday, we'll do it again. Uh, Colin will be along with uh, the Media Watch on Sunday morning. Jim Morris. Yeah, he will. I think I might have a, something on, on that show as well. We'll see. We'll see. Good on you.